If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Let me end on the N.A. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And thank you, Miss Kimberly Dillon, KD, for making it to the show, as always. I'm really grateful that you're here because we're going to be talking a lot about marketing, which is something I know very little about. So thank you for being here and supporting. And I'm really excited about our guest today, uh, Mr. Thomas Winstanley, who is the VP of Marketing for Theory Wellness. As I said, we're we're already like in the middle of uh, conversation, uh, so we'll just pick up from and people can just listen in to our private conversation we're having. I think it's more interesting that way. But we're we're just talking about you know what the transition was from the illegal and by the way, it's uh, cannabis still federally illegal. But what we mean by state by state, you know, living in Massachusetts or living in in California, like you know, coming from Philly and having this uh, sort of oh my God, it's illegal, it's black market. But there, there was something nostalgic and sexy and dark and, and dangerous about that. And, and you were saying how you sort of have these experiences in the, in the past with you know, your guys smoking and what I, what I used to do. People would come over and you connect with people. You, you share a joint with somebody or whatever it is. There's that connection. And you were saying like how yeah. you actually leverage or try to use that in your marketing efforts. So I'm, I'm super curious yeah. if you're going to expand on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think as somebody who I came into this industry, you know, at some, at, when I, when I joined, it was always something that I was, was hoping that I could apply all my skill sets from, you know, past experience as a marketer and an advertiser and translate that into, you know, the space. And, but I think really where there, there's a, there's a passion point on this was being able to, to leverage the kind of personal relationships that I developed along the way using cannabis, everything from friends to, you know, guys like Smokey, who is a guy who lived next door to me in Brooklyn, who, you know, I would buy, you know, a dime bag from or a dub from every couple of weeks. And, you know, I bought it more to like, because the guy's, the guy's hustling and I see him out there and he's on the grind and it's like, well, you know, I would like, didn't mind having a conversation with him, grabbing a bag, rolling up a blunt and, you know, just socializing on the top of a roof in Brooklyn in the middle of the summertime. And, you know, that kind of that relationship and that trust and that kind of mutual experience is something that, you know, I personally always really appreciated, um, which was a big part of the reason why I fell in love with cannabis above all things. And we bring a lot of that and we try to kind of, we bring a little bit of that constitution to what we look at when we think about our marketing. And in a lot of ways, we're building those same bridges. Where are you based, actually? Um, that would help frame this discussion for me a little bit. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, so I'm. Uh, so Theory is between Massachusetts and Maine, and we've got um, uh, Rec and Med stores in Mass, and then we have Rec stores up in Maine. Um, and my office is actually in Western Mass, um, in Pittsfield, Mass. So we're right near our Great Barrington store, which... 
is really like was one of the big drivers of our business early on. It was the sixth dispensary in Massachusetts um, in, on the East Coast for Rec. And so we had a we had a lot of draw from New York City um, and you know New York, Connecticut, and so um, that's where we've you know that's where theory has kind of blossomed, um, and that's where I'm coming out of today from Pittsfield. Nice. And where are you from? I'm from here in the Berks. I'm from uh, a town over, ironically enough. Um, so when we opened our first store for Rec, you know there was definitely a moment of triumph for me as a kid who has had long hair in high school, who used cannabis and who always got in trouble for using cannabis in high school. And, you know, I was the one who carried the sign out saying we're now open for business. And, you know, the town next door to mine where, you know, I was kicked out of the national honor society for wearing a t-shirt that said 420 back in 2005. So um, it's come kind of full circle for me in a lot of ways. I love that. I will confess that I'm Googling the Berkshire Shire. I am a pure California girl. Um, <laughs> and my only reference is uh, on the uh, Housewives of New York. I feel yeah, like they say they... It's Boston. <laughs> it's, it's like... It's they come up here for sure. Yeah, yeah they, they've come through here for sure. And they've come to our store as well. Yeah. Oh, I can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I never, I never watch those shows. Uh, all right, so l- let me back up before we get into yes. the theory. I, I, I mentioned it up front that marketing to me is sort of this black box. And the reason for why is because I've never been able to, uh, to really understand what that really entails. Because every single time that we, we, and we've dealt with like big time agencies and, and individual marketers. And, and I'm so grateful to have both you and, and Kimberly because this is, uh, you know, this is Kimberly's background too. And I'm trying to understand, we have advertising, we have marketing, we have PR, we have publicists, we have all these different things. And every single time that I go and I try to go to, get a go-to-market strategy for something, uh, it's, it's always like, all right, we're, we're going to have to look at Google AdWords and see what the CPC is. Well, I'm like, well, don't you want to understand and capture my essence? Like, isn't the whole thing? I always envision marketing as like you talk to one of the founders or somebody who has got the concept mm-hmm. and the idea. And yeah. let's try to rephrase that and put that into terminology. Then now we'll start creating campaigns specifically to sort of get people uh, to also relate to that in some way to evoke emotion. And this is sort of, and and there are so many different processes that you know we've gone through. We, you know, what are the what are the words? What what evokes this? But I, I've never really, I've never really figured it out. So I'm trying to understand first marketing in general. How do you envision? How do you see it? What is your approach? And then we'll see how it, how that can be implemented to theory and, and some of the other things that we're talking about as well. Yeah. So that's a that's a loaded question. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to, to try to distill a little bit of that. I'm always trying to learn. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I mean, honestly, the best way that I can phrase it is like we're, you know, from from my own personal perspective, marketers are facilitators of concepts and ideas. And the way that I always approach whether you know, I so I started in advertising where I would work on multiple different brands and I would understand. What is that brand seeking to accomplish? What is the mission behind that brand? How do they want people to feel about the brand? And then how do you build? Then the marketing is, once you know what this kind of set of variables are, then it's okay. Well, then how do we bridge the people, the people over here to help interact in a way that is going to be beneficial for people who are looking for things that are aligned in these set of variables? And the method at which you do that, the, the bridging of those two kind of subsets from, you know, consumers all the way to business or brand, how you do that is where marketing lives. And a lot of folks will say, you know, and I, I firmly believe in this, is that there, it's, art, it's both art and science in terms of how do you start to bridge this. And so when I, when I look at brands or I think about marketing in general and how do you start to build these, if I can't really understand the brand side, I can't even think about the audience side because you can't really dovetail the two. And it takes time and that's a growing process where over 
the life cycle of a brand, the answers to these variables will change as will the consumer, the consumers over here. And so when I'm, when I'm trying to conceptually try to figure out where does marketing fall within this, this spectrum, a lot of the time it starts with looking internally to then connect externally. So Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, makes total sense. So if I were to use this uh, description in what you do today with Theory Wellness, so the first thing you need to do is establish sort of the, the differentiator. What is Theory Wellness? What makes Theory Wellness unique? And establish that as sort of, uh, you know, the, the brand itself. And then how do, we, how do we then use that to create messaging and other systems to get people to come into the stores to buy things? Is, is that yeah, like... Entirely, yeah. And, you know, I think for us, a lot of things that I'm, you know, discipline is, you know, I always, you know, I always talk with my team about discipline because I think something that a lot of people, you know, there's a way of which people think about marketing is like, all about big ideas like everything's a big idea you know everybody's trying to hit home runs and grand slams you know i'm a i'm a if i had to be a ball player i'm somebody who cares more about my on-base percentage than i do about the number of home runs i hit you're pete rose without the gambling yeah probably well maybe a little gambling too but not 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 that it'll get me in trouble only licensed legal gambling of course um but you know a lot of that a lot of that is like i i am a big facilitator of you know because we're our business is actually not, it's very different from a lot. We were talking about this recently where we're one part agriculture. We're another part production and manufacturing. We're another part retail. And so most businesses are somewhat binary in that, like, you know, you're one of three or you're not doing all of these together. And so part of what's really interesting about what, what, I get to do is I work really closely with the heads of production and cultivation and I go to them and I ask questions and I listen to try to understand, okay, like, what do you, what, what is going into this product that you're making or how are you cultivating this flower or what's, what makes you excited about what you're doing and help me understand because I have to go as a translator, I have to go and say, okay, well, this is why these people care about this, these professionals and what makes them excited. I have to go and then help my consumers understand what is exciting about what we're doing. And then part of that discipline is making it feel consistent. So if you're visiting our website or hitting us up on social or coming to a store, I want everybody to know like, oh, that's a theory experience. Like that's theory, like that's the brand and that's who they are. And that's a that's an ongoing process that just never ends. Yeah, I, I think the one word that you said that resonates with me uh, in terms of what I think the role of somebody who's your, the marketing person is, it's the translator. It's absolutely, it's a, it's a hundred percent. And that to me is the biggest gap in, in marketing. When the person who is working on marketing with you doesn't understand fully like what it is that you're trying to convey and is able to take that message and translate it. So, you know, Bob from Iowa understands it too. No offense, Bob. I know you're <laughs> a brilliant guy too, but uh, you know, the, the average person, because you know, once again, I'm going to add, add me and Kimberly's smiling for those of you who can't see because I, I you know, it's, a, I'm, I'm, but that's my only experience is what, what it happens with me. It's, it's, we, when we first started, we had an 80 page report on your genetics. We're like, we're thrown in the kitchen sink. We got everything done. Here you go. It's all of it. And we were so proud and excited and high-fiving each other. And people were like, holy shit, I don't know what the fuck this is. This is this is way, way too much. How do I get the just the Cliff Notes version of that? How do I get the summary? Uh, and at the end of the day, all somebody really wants is to know, uh, what do I take? How much do I take? Where do I get it? What's going to work? Like, they don't care about all the stuff. And we, you know, we, we're very proud of ourselves. So this, I think that's the, the, the key is to be able to take that, all that. And you were talking about, you know, the, the cultivator and the manufacturer. Yeah. I mean, they're going to go in and tell you, well, our extraction method, this is, uh, you know, this is the uh, the nutrients that we use and this is the uh, light depth and all this stuff. And you're like, uh-huh, 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 great. Now, what makes this unique? And it's being able to translate and take yeah. that and, and say, put it in the messaging. Well, I here think. are two things I would say, and I this could be a hot take, but like one... 
especially since I know some of the marketers that you fired, I believe <laughs> that you have to use the plant, understand the plant, totally. live the plant. Like I'm not, and I don't even mean that just in cannabis. Like if I was going to work at General Motors, I would have to drive those types of cars. I would have to like I I fundamentally don't think you can market something you don't use. You don't have to use it every day, but like I believe that you have to sort of like live and breathe the product in order to market it. Number 2, and I know there's a lot of cannabis marketers who are scared of the plant. They they should take a DNA test and we can match them with their <laughs> <laughs> and then I think, secondly, if you're talking to a non-curious person, I think it's that on arrival. <laughs> like you yeah. have, yeah, you have curious. to be curious to be a marketer. Yeah. So I'll ask both of you really quick, and I, and I know Thomas, you want to respond to that. But do you give somebody leeway, meaning that if somebody's coming into the industry and they are a consumer, but they were not as educated? And they still refer to cannabis as marijuana and, you know, they don't, they don't know, but they're, they like it. They're curious. Do you give them some leeway to learn? Totally. So, yeah. So I think there's, so some of the stuff that was just shared, I mean, I, and I think fundamentally, I totally agree. I mean, you don't, you can still be a marketer, not understand what you're marketing and you're probably just not going to be a very good marketer. Um, and I think to a certain extent too, it's not necessarily, you know, I say this with my team, you know, there are members of my team who, will sparingly use cannabis. Like they're not really, they're not, they're not all about like going home and, you know, smoking spliffs or anything like that, but they, they use it out of a curiosity and a personal want to understand, even though it may not be their, like their choice of, you know, of substance user or what have you. But I do think there's a, there's a balance where, you know, for the person who's like, I would say like, well, we're not making mufflers, not dissimilar to the Ford reference, you know, but if I'm marketing mufflers, I want to know how muffler, I don't know nothing about mufflers, but if I was going to market them, I'd want to know what does a muffler do? How do you install it on a car? What is the variation? What does the car size impact on the diameter of a muffler? And I'm really curious about these things. And you know, and I think part of it too, uh, Len, is that if you, you know, for those people, like, do I give them a break or, or, you know, some bandwidth? And of course, and I think that's something where as a marketer, I'm very sensitive to the needs and the understanding of my audience as a whole, because, so I also, not just marketing, I oversee our customer service department. And that was a big thing because for me, one, I consider customer service, that's a one-on-one -on -one engagement with a potential consumer where, we can actually help where somebody says, keeps calling it marijuana or weed or pot or, you know, whatever. That's an opportunity to show what is this, what is cannabis today? And what, what is the new norm that we're trying and, and shooting to, to create in this legal environment? And a lot of it comes down to, we're trying to bring the future of cannabis that we want as passionate, you know, advocates. We want to bring that reality into, you know, into, you know, into the social construct. And so we give a lot of leeway on that. And so much of it comes down to education, especially on the East Coast, where it's still new. I mean, we're very, it's still very new. We're not like California or Colorado. Yeah, 100%. And I, I'm so glad that both you and Kimberly said that. I, this may be shocking or maybe not. Out of probably like 10 proposals that we've gotten from multiple agencies, maybe one actually asked us to use our product to go over it, to really, really, really understand it. All they're doing is giving us proposals, but not using the product, not diving deep in and not being intimate with that. So you guys are both absolutely correct. I I didn't even ask for you to tell us what is Theory Wellness? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a good, it's a good place to start. So um, we're a we're a vertically integrated cannabis company um, in both Massachusetts and Maine. Um, and we started in, they were started in 2015. I came on board in 2018. And at that time, there was only two medical dispensaries in Massachusetts. And our two founders are, um, you know, two friends from college who were, you know, in their early 30s, Nick and Brandon. And um, 
since, you know, once we started, the whole plan was medical and nobody really, back in Massachusetts, the vote for adult use cannabis or rec cannabis didn't happen until 2016. So the whole plan was always medical. And once, once kind of the, as the company started to grow, rec started to come online, you know, a lot of things changed for us. Um, and today now we're, we're a little bit of a rare type of company where we are an MSO, we're multi-state, but we're independent. So there's no big private equity, venture capital. We've been profitable since 2018. And so we're going on, you know, almost four years of profitability, which all capital gets reinvested into growth plans. And what's, what's interesting from where we're sitting is that we're watching all these huge, you know, conglomerates post, you know, massive, massive losses quarter over quarter. We've been quietly growing and growing and growing as a challenger brand in the Northeast. And it's, Amazing. That's the wild yes. ride for us. Yeah, it's it's really it's really amazing, and and I'm sure people will be knocking on your door for uh, mergers and all those things. Once, oh, they are. Uh, uh, yeah, if they're not doing it now, but so let me let me understand vertically integrated, right? So can you be vertically integrated in in multiple states in the states that you're operating? And the second follow up to that question is: Do you need specific licenses, like multiple licenses, or does it work the way it does like in Florida where everybody's sort of vertically integrated? And the third part of that question is, was that always the plan? Was the plan always to grow and and sell, you know, your own products? Yeah. So I think the first part of that was, you know, about the vertical integration of what does that really mean? So for us, from a licensing standpoint, we have, you know, for every retail store, there's a license. For every cultivation and op- uh, manufacturing, there's a license. And so, you know, we've been going through licensing processes, processes for ever, pretty much. Um, and the vertical integration side was required as, as early on in, in medical. And so part of what that actually is an advantage for on the medical side that is now for recreational also, obviously, the same rules apply we control the entire supply chain from seed all the way to sale to finished good. So Theory has 70 plus products um, all in-house from topicals, tinctures, flour, vapes. We now have a cannabis-infused seltzer under a, a separate sub-brand. Um, so licensing has always been a part of the, the gateway to, to our operations. Um, it happened to just so roll out in both Maine and Massachusetts where both states are vertically integrated. Um, and some, I mean, some companies are not vertically integrated, so you don't have to be, but we choose to be because we've, we've had success as that as a parameter for our operations. As we look forward into other states like a New York or a New Jersey, some of those regulations prohibit vertical integration for certain types of companies like in New York, rec companies moving forward, you can only have one of three licenses from cultivation to retail and so on and so forth. So it's been a part of the operations that we've been very, we've actually been very good at this kind of work where it's paperwork. I mean, it's literally a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of SOPs. It's a lot of, you know, control commissions, you know, looking at our operations and evaluating us and, Part of our success, I think, in our growth is that we've been really good in some of the most regulated markets, and we've we've managed to kind of grow and scale without a lot of adversity. How has the transition from medical to adult use, or I really don't like the word recreational because it doesn't make any sense, yeah. adult use, how, how did that transition and what are the shifts that you have to do from a marketing standpoint to be able to get yeah. people, you know, more aligned with that. Yeah, so that's a really good question, and there's a there are a lot of nuances in between that transition from medical to rec. First and foremost, you're working with an entirely different audience. So, medical in Massachusetts, you have to have a medical card. There's no reciprocity in Massachusetts for people who have other out-of-state medical cards to buy medical products. So what was interesting was when REC came on board, all of a sudden, think about it like this. If there was only one liquor store, you know, outside of New York City, 
um, and it was the only place to buy liquor, you can imagine the kind of demand that that liquor store would see up in Massachusetts. That was the only one, you know, the closest there. So overnight, our business really shifted where when we opened for recreational sales or adult use sales, you know, we had this incredible diversity of, of individuals who were coming to visit us. And you had, you know, you had all ends of the spectrum. You had, you know, the cannabis connoisseur who'd been growing genetics, you know, in underground in their basement for the last 20 years and just wanted to see what the East Coast legal cannabis market was. And then you had, you know, the, you know, my dad's generation who were looking at, you know, wanted to see what legal cannabis was like and were just so blown away that they were seeing the day that you could go into a store and buy cannabis. But then you also had this very other interesting group of, you know, vets from upstate New York who just want a better quality of life and wanted to legally purchase cannabis. Or, you know, uh, 85-year-old women who were saying, you know, come in and say, hey, well, you know, my, my grandson or my nephew recommended that I come and try some CBD salve for my arthritis on my knuckles. And so you had this very wide arena. And so a lot of our marketing was focused on not about like, probably would you work with agencies? Agencies are like, okay, well, what's your audience and who are you going for and what is their buying habits? And for us, it was more of a, well, let's just open up this broader thing, provide a lot of education and try to ease this new business into a, you know, into this new culture that didn't exist previously, that there was also a lot of skepticism around too. And so- I, I, that I love the you, approach. I, I love the approach of education as, as sort of the- uh, the way to draw people in, but how how do you do that? Like, uh, is it is it go to our website, learn more, mm -hmm. watch videos? Like, how do you actually get masses educated enough where it's not overwhelming to them? Yeah, it's a it's a fine balance, and it's we do it in a lot of different ways. So, from a marketing standpoint, you know, on. We, we actually served, we were one of the only cannabis companies in Massachusetts who were, you know, selling cannabis deli style. Um, we weren't prepacking. We had jars out where people could smell. And we go through extensive training with our cannabis consultants to understand and know the products. You know, talk about a group that should really know their products is those are the ones who are making recommendations to people. Um, and so we go through really extensive training, but we also take everything a step further where if we're running a, you know, a cut of blue dream or something, we'll write evergreen descriptions that we try to kind of cover off all of the basis of like, what is this plan? What is this file that you're getting? Cause a lot of people, cannabis is just cannabis. There was no variation. There's no genetics to it. It was just like, you get what you get, you know, that was a old school way of thinking about it, but we try to provide as much information from everything from our edibles about our dose standardization processes, the onset, the efficacy um, with, you know, vaporizers and oil, what the extraction process was, why we did it a certain way. And we've always been a small batch craft company. And that allows us to tell a bigger story about these products. And, you know, I think over time, we also, and we also had, a lot of, you know, press. I mean, a lot of people were coming to us and saying, you know, from New York State saying, first closest cannabis dispensary to New York is open. And we invited them in and said, here, let us talk you through this. Let us, let's show you guys what we're doing. And we've never really skimped on that side of the business where education and consumer education has always been a huge part. One of our pillars is service. Is how do you create world-class service and handle with care the people who are coming into a dispensary and saying, this is my first time and I don't really know what I'm doing. We never push people to, we don't speed transactions up. We try to make sure that every consumer who comes in gets every question answered. Um, you know, it's the same thing. That's part of the reason why I own customer service is that if you come to us and you ask a question, I want you to get that question answered within 10 minutes or less. You know, none of this just kind of like, oh, well, we'll get back to them or send them an email in a couple of days. It's always been something where, we feel like it's incumbent upon us to make sure people are educated about what we're doing and no question goes unanswered. So what is that process for a brand new consumer coming in, you know, uh, grandma or whoever mm -hmm. it is coming in and saying, I don't know, I was told to try cannabis. What do I do? Yeah. So that's a great question. And Len, it's one that we thought a lot about early on and it's almost like a decision tree. So the questions start with, have you used cannabis before? Yes or no? Yes, I've used it, but 
what was the, you know, what, if you say yes, then kind of what is your relationship to it? So if it's like, oh, I've, I've been using cannabis for 40 years and I want flour, I know what I want. But if it's somebody who's never used cannabis before, you know, then it's like, okay, well, what method do you want to try? Are you interested in? Do you want to try smoking it, which may be a little aggressive for your first time? Do you want to vape it, which is also maybe forward, but it depends on what your desired outcome is. Do you want to try an edible where you don't have to smoke anything, but it's, you know, you know, something you can eat. And then depending on where their comfort level is, then you kind of drill down within product categories. And to take a step back, a lot of it comes down to what is your desired outcome of using cannabis? And that's usually when we go through that precision tree, once we know what you're seeking to accomplish with your use, that helps us create a frame of reference to then go down. And again, part of the, the, the value of being vertically integrated, because in any category, these are products that we've created in-house. And as the marketer, I've photographed them, I've watched them get made, I've talked to the people who are making them to understand what are the answers to all these questions? How do we package them and present them? And so once you know what the desired outcome is, then you can take them through a little bit of a decision tree to pair them with the right products. And part of what my team does now is that, you know, for someone who wants to have a more formal conversation, we do like white glove one-on-one sessions with a consumer if, you know, they want to have a more in-depth conversation. Um, And that's been very, very valuable, I think, in a lot of ways for people who are easing in. Do you ever have, I'm sure you do, but this is the typical customer or new customer that used to smoke weed back in the 70s. And yeah. I actually had this conversation with a, with a gentleman who said, yeah, so one joint equals one beer. And I was like, maybe back in 1973 when you had like 6% THC, but if yeah. you're going to smoke a whole joint there, my friend, and you're going to equate, you will be under this table in uh, in uh, minutes. So uh, do you have people coming in and, and think that, you know, they had a relationship with cannabis, but it's not the same cannabis as your, you know, grandfather's yeah. cannabis anymore? Yeah. I mean, that's the way that we, you know, to use like a, you know, a pretty like barbaric analogy is that on your 21st birthday, if you go to a bar and you say, I want three shots of Jack Daniels, you're probably going to not have a great time on your 21st birthday. And we have the same conversations with consumers who are like, well, I'm a, you know, I've been smoking for 40 years and it's like, oh, well, fine. You know, if you, if, you know, we're ultimately if a consumer is like, I, is hell bent on this stuff, that's fine. But we try to educate and we try to have conversations about, you know, why, you know, why you're, you know, you're, your total tack on a flower strain is maybe not the best litmus test for, you know, the effects and expression. Terpene profiles go a long way in this. I mean, I found personally that sometimes the 16% flower that, you know, gets me way more, you know, gets me way more kind of sedated than a 34 plus because the terpene profiles just land differently with my endocannabinoid system. And we try to get to that level of detail if a consumer is willing to go there with us. Not all of them do, but generally speaking, we try to we try to have that conversation. And a good example is my dad. So my dad's been growing cannabis, you know, since you know since the seventies. And he is like we joke and we you know I call it dad weed. You know, sometimes the weed that my dad loves is not the stuff that he gets at a dispensary. It's the to your point, like. The six to twelve percent THC that also has a higher CBD content, and we talk a lot about this. That a lot of modern genetics are breeding out the CBD content in their THC, which, you know, for me, I don't love that. I actually love a lot of our farm-grown flour that you know sometimes tests a little bit lower, but the terpene profiles are a little bit less exposed, and they have some really really interesting blends that, you know, work really well for me, but. You know, I think there's a there's a part of that's I think almost a next wave of the cannabis industry where you know in Massachusetts everybody's looking at what is the highest percentage testing product that you have, and that's like going again like going and buying Everclear versus you know buying something that's a little bit more nuanced has a little bit of a different profile to it. So we have everybody who comes through, and you know, depending on it, we we try to help and we try to be very transparent about people's buying habits, but you know, some people. Some people are more willing to have that conversation than others. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I concur exactly what you said about, you know, the, uh, having THC content in the teens, but having a fully expressed, uh, you know, cultivar 
that has all the terpene minocannabinoids and all that stuff. It makes it completely different. I mean, you have multiple receptor binding sites on that and all the constituents, you know, support and experience. I think one of the things that's happening now is, you know, it's like California has been what, since 1996 or whatever. Yeah. I went to Canada and Canada is a, a federally legal country. Like the entire country is legal, but they can't, you can't advertise brands or anything else. And, you have all kinds of weird laws. So you go into six different dispensaries, which I did. And I was asking, what is your best-selling products? And what do you, uh, and it's it's all over the place. But yeah. there's a con- consistency is what you just said. It's the ones that have the highest amount of THC because it's the only way to differentiate. And I hope, I think that's at some point we'll get it. You don't really need that much. THC is bound. The rest of it is, is free and in gets excreted. You're not really getting that. And over, you know, overbinding of that receptor is not good either because it creates all kinds of different uh, yeah. challenges and issues as well. So I'm, I'm really glad that you're, you're bringing that up, but you're still going to have those people that want the highest THC. They want to dab, they want to do, yeah. if you, you have everything available for them, I guess. Yeah. That's, uh, and that's also that's cool a- too. You know, like it's no, there's no, there's no salt on those folks at all, but it's more of a, you know, I think what one of the values of the industry maturing is that we're going to see we're going to see consumer relationships with cannabis products really start to mature and evolve to the point where previously it was like people would come in and just buy anything. I mean, they would just like, oh, it's legal, like just get it. And now they're they're asking good questions, and that to me is a really good sign in your consumer base. If they're coming in and asking, you know. If they're asking about genetics or lineage or cycles or humidity, I mean, those are questions that I, I love getting. I'm like, that's a good sign of where if people are asking us about this, these kind of indicators of quality, then we're doing something right. And they're caring about the things that we've been caring about. Now they're coming back and saying like, oh, you know, I had this conversation with this person and they said, you know, that this this cut of, you know, your max, your max, cut uh, from calculator is different from a Mac S1. And so why are you running? And it's, those are the kind of questions where you're like, okay, well, people are starting to get it. But I think there's always going to be, the good thing about cannabis is there's more than enough room for everybody and anybody can have a different perspective. And, you know, we just try to make sure that depending on what your perspective is, we're going to have something that will make you, will we'll meet that need. Yeah, agreed. Is there a role or what is the role of brands in, in cannabis? Man, you know, that's a really good question. And I don't think we know yet. I think we're starting to understand, but I don't think we know. And I, I actually had a really great meeting with the other you know, members of our C-suite yesterday, and we were talking about brand. Um, and the conversation was, a lot of it is, we, when I started, you know, so Theory started in 2015, so we're not even a decade old. When you look at the the life cycle of a brand, if you look at like Nike or Coca-Cola, these brands that we think of when we hear brand or Apple have been around for decades. Theory is theory is a is a toddler. Theory is like a little older than River, my son, if you will. You know, where <laughs> River's really young, but he's not quite a toddler. Theory's almost going into this toddler phase where we know a little bit about, we're, we're learning more about who we are and really what our brand stands for. And this gets back to some of the original questions about what is this, what is, what is this side of the equation of what is your brand, what does it stand for, and what does it offer? And I think brands are a good way to help connect consumers in that education and that understanding of product. Mm-hmm. I think over time, the role of brands is going to be a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. Brands that everybody knows that are scaled across the country that are so in people's faces that you have to know about them, I would argue is probably a a net negative for product as a whole. But on the same side, though, I think quality and reputation that comes with certain brands will help elevate, you know, the cannabis experience. And Something that we always do is, you know, my team knows this. Our, one of our kind of sayings in-house here is, it's better to be discovered than announced. 
if I have to pay for you to know that I exist, I'm probably not doing my job very good as a cannabis marketer. Um, I want to make sure that as a company, as an organization, that I am not beating you over the head with who we are, what we do. And I think it's better to show, not tell everybody what you stand for. And I think these two kind of monikers for us is what we want to be as a brand as we grow. I think the overarching role of brand in cannabis is going to be really weird. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see how it continues to get adopt how brands get adopted nationally because there are very few brands that everybody knows and i think over time i hope that theory becomes one of them but i'm also not going to spend a bajillion dollars getting cpc you know looking at you know adwords and trying to pummel you with who we are because i don't think that's how you win as a brand or succeed as a brand yeah it's uh, yeah it's uh, maybe kimberly has uh, some thoughts on that too uh, on the branding side, but I, I just find it fascinating because you have you have the siloed approach to an industry where you have brands of specific, uh, you know, dispensary brands that we know, like uh, you know, whatever. I'm not going to mention any any of the brands out there, but they you yeah, know, they're they're the Apple Store of cannabis. So you you know the brand of the store, but what do you think about that? Like what yeah. what comes to mind? Then you have brands of cannabis. I'll mention cookies, for instance, because people know that brand. What does that stand for? Well, what I see is a lot of young people wearing merch. And they're like, oh, it's cool because it associates me with, you know, cannabis in some way. It doesn't mean, when I ask people, it doesn't mean that it's the highest quality cannabis it means that it's therapeutic or that's my wellness brand. I don't even know what it is, but it's recognizable. So maybe it is because it's in its, in its infancy. And then, uh, you know, and then you have brands like Charlotte's Web that at yeah. some point was associated with, okay, well, this is medicinal. So we know if we're thinking medicinal and I can get it at my local Whole Foods. I don't know if you can get a Whole Foods, but I'm just saying, if you can, now that's a medicinal product. So, I mean, you're, we're so in the infancy and it's interesting to see whether like the cure leaf, whether that's going to be like, that's my store brand. I know that I can get my Walmart type of, uh, you know, cannabis, or is it going to be the exclusive elite product that is available? I, I don't know, but it's, it's interesting what's going to shake out. Yeah. I mean, and it's, uh, again, that's a, that's a question that we talk about. We talked a lot about that actually yesterday about, you know, somebody called us the Walmart of weed. And we were like, damn, what? Really? Okay, well, we... <laughs> you don't want to be called the Walmart of weed. You talk about part of Poppy Carry. You said a winery and all that stuff. You have a curated experience. <laughs> That's, uh, you don't have a, a yeah. Walmart appeal. But I also think there's a, there's, a, there's a thing about the counterculture who's watching, who are watching brands, you know, for the people who have been carrying cannabis industry illegally, who are now seeing this commoditization of something that, a lot of ways may not have they wanted to see it commoditized and so if you're big and you're successful you're automatically something that runs kind of conversely to the way that the legal market has come up against the illicit market and so i think there's definitely some there's some competing principles i think the way that people will see brands i think so and i also don't think there's been that many people who've invested in branding like True. I think there's a lack of understanding of how much money it actually takes to build a brand. It's a ginormous amount of money that I can't imagine most cannabis companies are even willing to see <laughs> written down on a piece of paper because it would be such a god-awfully big number. Yeah. And I think that people think these numbers are small. I have a good product and you're a smart person. Build me a brand. And it's like... Brands are incredibly expensive, 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 expensive. Not, it's not a cheap or fast thing to do. So I think there's that. And I also think that our category is just so wide. I think that, you know, comparing an infused product to an agricultural product in the same breath is a big stretch, right? Like, 
I don't necessarily know where most of my pork comes from. But I do have a real specific thought of the type of cereal I buy. <laughs> so it really depends on the category and the product segment. And it's interesting. So this past week and why my voice is gone is I was at NFTLA because I'm uh, really into crypto now. And um, cannabis was given at every party. The index between NFTs and weed is 100%. It is the same circle. All of these kids are high all of the time. <laughs> yeah. 100%. That's that's why they're buying it. That's why they're buying NFTs. Out of 100%. High. Like there is it's the same market. <laughs> so I asked a, I asked a lot of them like, "Oh, well which brand?" Couldn't tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll ask I'll ask both of you that is using celebrities to accelerate that brand brand recognition is that an effective way to start establishing a brand? I want to hear Kimberly's response first. Or influ or or influencers or celebrities? I mean, rarely. I mean, I think if you think about the types of celebrities, it's going to be retired athletes that we may or may not remember who they are. Um, in certain sports, um. A lot of the names that I think could move the needle are not names that can represent. And I only think it's because it's so incredibly true to who they are already. So, like, for example, I don't think this is true for most celebrities, but if Rihanna had a weed line, I'm immediately buying it. <laughs> like, no question. Like, But why? Why? Because Rihanna is the epitome of a woman who smokes weed proudly, openly for decades. Like we're not doubting that this, that this woman is obsessed with weed. <laughs> right. But, but, but here's, here's the, uh, the question I have on that. So Tommy Chong has been smoking for, I don't know, 80 years, whatever it is. Uh, you have, you have Seth Rogen, you have all these other, you uh, Snoop, you have, you have the Marley family, do I care about some, any of those people? No. Well, may, but you, you don't. But the, the analogy that I'm trying to make is they've been out there as open in their communities as Rihanna was in, in, is in her community. Does she grow her own weed? The, is she is she the one that's sampling this and saying, I stand behind the quality of this product? Because I remember when the Marley family first put out their cannabis and I had the fund there asking me specifically what I think of it. And I said, I mean, Bob Marley, are you kidding me? You can't have this kind of product with his uh, his brand on it. That doesn't that doesn't equate to the image. So if she's going to do that, she better be super, super involved, because as soon as I consume, my expectations are really, really high. As you said, she is open and she's a consumer and she I'm expecting this to be the, the best quality. And as soon as it's not, I'm going to be super disappointed. Well, I think, and I would love to hear Thomas's perspective, but like, one, there's a rare celebrity. So when I said Rihanna, that is like my exception. <laughs> Generally, I don't care about any of these celebrities. We all know what the game is. We've all been through the Kardashian decade of them selling us a thousand products and not caring. Like, we know what time it is. We know that their agent or someone picked 10 things out of a catalog and then they picked another thing and then that's the only involvement. Like consumers aren't dumb. And so we know that most celebrity-backed things are cash grabs. The only reason why Rihanna would appeal to me is because Rihanna already has Fenty. And Rihanna like is someone that like I'm generally, she's in my age group, like, Comparing Rihanna to Tommy Chung is a bad setup. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I don't think I don't think I was <laughs> that was the comparison. All right, this is this is not. I, I would love for Thomas to uh, uh, give his uh, thoughts on this, but, but I, I will say one last thing, and I'll be quiet and let Thomas talk about it. The only caveat to what you just said is be real. 
And I think that's the the one celebrity who's fully, fully involved in his product, in, in the brand, and in the launches of his brands all the time, because he's a person that I trust that knows uh, quality cannabis and is super involved in, in his brand uh, and also is, as a celebrity. So and, and it is still, you know, putting out music, et cetera, and is still relevant. I mean, I, I think all of this is just a spectrum and it comes back to the question is what do you, what do you want your brand to be? You know, and, and I think that's where I always just kind of align on, you know, celebrity endorsement, celebrity brand, celebrity culture, anything or influencer culture per se. Um, again, I kind of come back to that mentality of, you know, it's better to be discovered than announced. As soon as you bring on a celebrity or someone, you're basically, you know, and I think in certain ways it, it is a really great strategic decision depending on your business. The business challenge you're looking to, to solve. You know, for theories, for theory, you know, would we benefit from, you know, bringing on a, a you know, a celebrity like Gronkowski to represent theory? You know, is that going to be red meat for the base of Massachusetts? Probably. But is that also going to make us seem even more like the Walmart of cannabis? Well, probably too. Um, and I think it's a delicate thing where I think in a lot of ways, right now, celebrity is a for me, it's a short-term lever for you know a short runway of success that becomes harder to sustain. Because if your brand also relies on that individual, your brand is less about your brand doesn't stand on its own two feet. It is leaning or propped by a bigger individual that you're being supported by. And in a lot of ways, that's fine and that's totally okay. And that could be very much the MO. I think when it has to be the right instance, and I'm just someone who it would be very hard for me to see somebody like it would be very hard for me to be influenced by somebody who's very high profile to get me to go buy something. Um, and that's the kind of consumer that I am in a lot of ways. And I mean, we talk about this with our other brand high five, which is a cannabis infused seltzer, which, you know, that one, maybe well, we we've talked about it. Like there's definitely a possibility there at some point. Um, but I think ultimately now, I'm seeing so much of this that I'm almost like, damn, like the one celebrity brand that I've been really blown away with is Jay-Z's monogram. Um, because Jay-Z's really, I mean, you can tell what he's doing is he is, I don't know much about B-Real's brand, but I know from monogram, what I've seen is like his design is incredible. His, his, his packaging, his presentation has all been really, really fantastic. Um, but again, like I'm never going to go buy a product because the celebrity says you should go buy this product. Because I'm also like the marketer who's anti-marketer in a lot of ways. Where I'm like, well, this is definitely going to create wins, but at what cost is that win going to have a trade-off? And I've looked at a lot of these deals too, where you know, for us to partner with, I'm not going to name names just because I don't want to float anything. But when we've been talked, we've had conversations with you know cultivators who are like, okay, well, do you want to run? X celebrity flower, it'll be a you know very large six figure number to enter the contract. Plus, there's a royalty off of every product that eats our margins that will ultimately you know have a financial impact. That's really hard. The trade off of what the value they would deliver is that a sustainable value or is it a short win? And you know, and I think that for for me is you know not just with cannabis, but I also think just with a lot of brands, it's very hard for me to say, oh well you know, ex-celebrities or whatever celebrities is endorsing this. And I almost get more skeptical of products that require celebrity endorsements in a lot of ways because of, to Kimberly's point, the last like decade of Kardashian products that have just been, you know, so prolifically absorbed by the mainstream that, you know, we're propping up this mentality of celebrity worship that I'm a little, frankly, is personally uncomfortable and think it's kind of weird, but that's my two cents. But I mean, if I'm with you though, if Rihanna <laughs> had like a pre-roll company, like there's a very high likelihood that if I saw it, I'd buy it just because it's Rihanna. But that's a rare, that's a rare, and there are very few celebrities yeah. to say that about. It's, it's an excellent point. I, I, I agree about the sustainability and the amount of investment that you have to make in that celebrity with all that stuff, especially in certain states in California. I mean, you get taxed. It's very difficult to be profitable. Imagine you're actually putting a royalty on top of that a representation agreement for the for the celebrity, all that stuff. It really, really cuts into your margins. So you, you have to make a, 
yeah. you know, an and, informed decision on that. And that's, sure. and honestly, I think the profit margins we're seeing in cannabis now, you know, in every legal market, the market bottoms out at a certain point because people overproduce. Yeah. And then yeah. the, the, you know, your supply versus demand curve always will normalize. Those margins will get real, real thin. And then all of a sudden your, you know, your $5 royalty on an eighth becomes, you know, less than, you know, 70% of your margin and then 80% of your margin and 90% of your margin. And then all of a sudden you're paying out a lot of money to something that's maybe not driving as much value. So what's, what's the next like phase of theory wellness? Uh, you mentioned New York, you mentioned New Jersey. Are you looking to expand into those states and start building out multiple states with the same sort of, you know, with your brand? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is going to come down to, you know, so, so the East Coast right now is blossoming. I mean, it is going into its, it, you know, its, its flower period right now because you've got states like New Hampshire looking at legalizing REC, Vermont looking at REC, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. I mean, everybody is now having these conversations. And a lot of what we're trying to figure out now is, is how, do you, how do we preserve this kind of core of who we are as a company and scale that without losing kind of the, 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 the aesthetic and the ethos that we created with this brand? Because a lot of brands will overscale, grow too fast, and then you start to form these massive gaps. We want to preserve as much as we can of what we've created in Massachusetts and Maine. And so there are a lot of different avenues that we can take to do that. Everything from licensing, franchising, vertical integration, retail only, cultivation. I mean, all of this stuff is in play for us. And we are starting to build out a little bit of that roadmap. But as you know, people know in cannabis, that roadmap is literally changing every day. And some days we're clearing the road as we're driving through it. And it's always an ever-evolving process. But I mean, we do have a goal of being a, a, a leader on the East Coast. Um, because we're privately owned and because we're already an MSO, it's, we have some jockeying position to help make that a reality. And we're only going to go where it makes sense for us as a company and for our people. And that's really what's going to be the North Star. Got it. Well, I have an idea for you. Oh, yeah? So as soon as, as soon as consumption lounges become legal in uh, those states, you create a consumption lounge called Smokies. And you sit down on the couch, you have some video games, and you share a blunt with the people, your patrons, and that's it. And you re, you recreate that whole environment that you used that to have. Vibe, man. I, that I, vibe, man. That vibe, man. I tell you, it's still, you know, it's still, it's always going to be something that, like, will be one of the greatest, like, cannabis experiences of just for, you know, no joke, for, like, three years, this guy and I were, like, I mean, and even when I would have, like, you know, dates come by and then somebody would yell Tommy Cruz and it would be smoky. And they'd be like, how do you know this guy? And it's like, Oh, he's my boy. Like, you know, it's always that, that vibe. And, uh, you know, I hope, I hope the future of cannabis still preserves that interaction and that kind of feeling, but that, that's going away. That that's, so it's going away twofold. Number one, it's because cannabis has become, as Kimberly said, uh, nail on the head with the people are coming in don't have any relationship to the plant. Yeah. So if you don't have a relationship to the plant, but you're seeing the other green and you're building this as a business, I mean, it definitely is, uh, it's hard for you to establish that kind of relationship. The other thing is with COVID, you know, people are afraid to smoke a joint with you anymore. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, it's, we have to do it with BC. So hopefully that side will go away, but the culture, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see if, uh, how we can bring that back. Yeah. Um, all right, so we come to the point in the interview where uh, I'm going to ask you uh, several really, really difficult questions. So I hope you're you're ready uh, for these. Uh, sure. Take take a breath. All right. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so please describe your first experience with cannabis, if you remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was a. I was a. I think I was probably in. Uh, somewhere between eighth and ninth grade, going to a graduation party uh, of uh, an older siblings of mine, smoking out of the piece of a garden hose that, you know, a guy in the upper class was showing me. And uh, I didn't think I had gotten stoned, but 
my mom was like, why are you acting so weird? And I was like, I have really bad allergies. And I went home, my eyes were so bloodshot. Um, and uh, that was the start of a very long relationship that is still here today. I love it. Um, so I'm a big music guy. So I want to ask you a couple of music related questions. Do you remember, what, was, what was the first uh, concert you ever attended? The Pixies at UMass. Um, it's like 16. No, 14, probably. 14 or 15. Yeah. Um, what was the last concert you attended? Ooh. COVID, damn. Uh, I saw uh, my favorite pianist, uh, a guy named Nils Fromm. At a, um, he played an incredible concert at, at a Brooklyn Steel probably about a year and a half ago. Cool. Uh, you have any... Uh, Anything that you're listening to now that you would want to make a recommendation? Oh, man. Yeah. So I've been listening. It's funny. I can't believe you're just asking this. Um, I've been listening a lot to... Um, there's a, there are two DJs called Too, Too Many DJs. Also, they also go by a group named Soul Wax. And um, they had just done this... I think it was probably five years ago or four years ago. They did a, a project with James Murphy from LCD Sound System where they built an incredible custom sound system. Soul Wax and James Murphy played this series of concerts called Despacio. Not like the uh, Justin Bieber song, but, um, and they didn't have any recordings of it until probably about three months ago. Some of them showed up on SoundCloud and I have been listening to these three hour sets pretty much consistently every day for the last month or so. Very hyped on it. Love that. It's a great recommendation. And uh, you can't go wrong with anything that from LCD yeah. sound system and James uh, Murphy. Okay. Uh, what has cannabis meant in your life? Oh, God. I don't know. I never actually really thought about that. I mean, it obviously means a lot. Um, cannabis has always been one of those things that's been kind of a, a friend during the good times, the bad times. And... Um, you know, now it's been, it's almost like my relationship with cannabis has matured where uh, it's my, in a lot of ways, it's my life and my livelihood. Um, and it always has had a little bit of that sense, I think, deep down where um, I never really had, I've never had bad experiences getting stoned or, or being stoned. Um, it's always complemented whatever activity I've done or maybe even lessened the burden of certain activities that or feelings go through. And so today as somebody who's, you know, my livelihood is dependent on this plant and um, I'm incredibly grateful to be able to say that my life is surrounded by something that's created by nature. Um, and that's a very powerful thing that I take a lot of respect with that and personally and also professionally. And I hope the work that we do at Theory helps honor some of that um, appreciation and respect we have for, for the plant. Yeah, I love that. Um, all right, bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. I, uh, I'm trying to think about that. Shit. Um, it was filled with, I had a lot of cassettes. I used to make a lot of mixtapes with cassettes, listening to ripping stuff off the radio. Um, I had a Val Kilmer Batman poster on the wall for quite some time. Um, that was shortly replaced by a Jurassic Park poster as I got older. Um, had a lot of books in my bedroom. Um, and it was usually a fucking mess. So that's about as cool. far as I can really remember. From the- <laughs> that's great. No, that's, uh, I-, I love that question because it, we get such interesting answers to that question. It gives you sort of a perspective uh, of an individual. So yeah. It's, it's really cool. That's so funny. Man. Um, I thought about my childhood bedroom a long damn time. <laughs> Uh, so Thomas, where can people find out about more about theory wellness? You, where can they contact you? Yeah. So, yeah, theory wellness, you can find us on, you know, theorywellness.org. um, search us on Google, you'll find us, um, you know, you can try to find us on Instagram, but they've been burying us and hiding us and shadow banning us. So, um, we're at theory wellness may take a couple of searches to get there. Um, you know, you can find us on LinkedIn too. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Um, and, uh, 
you know, hopefully, uh, you know, some folks will want to give us a try and learn more about us. Well, cool, man. I really appreciate your time. Wish you all the best and the success in the uh, future endeavors, theory and, you know, et cetera. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I appreciate you both. I appreciate you having us on. And if uh, either of you guys are out on the East Coast, or please let me know. We'd love to have you. Oh, I definitely will take you up on that. Cool, man. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.